street. This is a wonderful story. You'll remember the book of Daniel began with four friends that were kidnapped from their homeland and taken to Babylon. And the purpose for that was to train them in the king's court to serve the king. They were of royal descent, or at least of nobility. Tradition has it that Daniel, who seems to have been the leader of the four, he was of royal descent. He was one of the, the David's families, one of the cousins of the king, that sort of thing. Daniel does not appear in our story this morning. Though the book bears his name, and though most of the book involves him in some way, shape, form, or fashion, in this particular chapter, Daniel is not mentioned at all. But this story is about his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let's start with chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province, province of Babylon. Now, we don't know what prompted Nebuchadnezzar to build this statue, but he built a statue probably of a person and probably of himself. It was 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. So if you were looking at it, it would be more like an obelisk, more like a pencil standing out on the plains of, of Dura. If, the, if it was a, a, a statue of himself from head to toe, it was a very distorted statue, right? Does some kind of thin sort of, maybe like a totem pole almost of himself. But others have suggested that maybe it sat on a high pedestal with a, with a proportionate statue on top of it, made of gold. What, what prompted him to do this the statue? We don't know. In Babylonian writings, there is no mention of Nebuchadnezzar ever building this statue on the plains of Dura. But in all fairness, there are over 40 or 50 years of Babylonian history that we have no record of at all. And so I think it's safe to say that Daniel, Daniel is a, a safe and good historical record of what happened with the people of Babylon and in the land of Babylon. What, what prompted the statue? Maybe it was the dream he had. If you were here last week, you'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that Daniel interprets for him, and it's of a statue. It has a gold head, silver chest, bronze belly, iron feet that turn into iron and clay uh, at the feet level. So maybe it was, hey, I want to build a statue since I'm the golden head of that statue. I'm going to build a statue that's all gold of me. I'm going to, I'm going to speak contrary to that dream. Maybe that was it. There is historical references of other kings doing this, making statues of themselves out of gold. And so it could have been just a thing that he just wanted to do, build a statue of himself out of gold there on the plains of Dura. We, we'll never know what his motivation was. Verse 2, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the providences to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and counselors, and treasurers, the judges, and magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations of men, every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a fire of blazing, a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, 
psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples and nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. At the, de at the dedication of his statue, Nebuchadnezzar made sure that everyone was there. The list of the leadership seems to be all-inclusive. Everybody who was anybody in leadership needed to be at the dedication of the statue. And when they were all there assembled, a herald stood up to speak for the king. And this is what the herald said. In just a few moments, you're going to hear the sound of the bagpipe and all those instruments. And when you hear that music, you have one duty, and that is to bow down and worship this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar has has built and if you do not do that you will be burned alive in a furnace of fire the romans were known historically for crucifixion the babylonians were known for burning people in furnaces of fire and so when the music played everyone bows down everyone except for shadrach meshach and abednego or hananiah mishael and azariah they don't bow they stand and they surely stand out People have asked, why wasn't Daniel there? Why isn't Daniel included in this group? Why wasn't he at the dedication of the statue? And, you know, and, and we don't know why he wasn't there. Maybe he was traveling for the king. Some have suggested that the king himself may have not have been at the dedication, and Daniel was with the king, wherever the king was. It seems like the king actually wasn't at the dedication, although with so many people there, he could have missed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego himself. It seems hard to believe that he wouldn't have been there for the dedication, but for whatever reason, Daniel was not there. Verse 8, for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. As you can imagine, the three faithful men standing when everyone else is bowing, they get reported to the king. Uh, if you'll remember, Daniel has actually asked that they be appointed over all of the province of Babylon. So it seems like these three men are the leaders of all the provinces of major Babylon while Daniel is serving in the capital city with the king. Jealousy could be their motive. All the people that were there listening, they could have been motivated by jealousy, and that's why they reported them. Maybe they're just being loyal, faithful, patriotic Babylonians who see the three men who aren't doing what King Nebuchadnezzar has said. Whatever, whatever their motivation, they go and they turn in these three men, and they say, these three men did not do what you said they were to do. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit angry and perturbed at these three men for not doing what they 
told him to do, what he told them to do, excuse me. However, he gives them a chance to repent. He gives them a chance to change their mind, which says to me that uh, he desires these, he desires for these guys not to be killed. He's giving them a second chance. And so he hammers the point home and he says, when the sound goes, you need to bow down. And if you don't, you're going to burn. And, and he says this, he says, there's no God who can deliver you out of my hand. So he, he seems to be just kind of driving it home. This is it, guys. This is your last opportunity. Nobody's going to rescue you. Nebuchadnezzar was pretty prideful, pretty arrogant. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to, king, to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Probably one of the three men spoke for all three of them. It may have been Shadrach, since he's always listed first. He says, we don't have to think about this. He says, what, what's his exact words? We, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. In other words, he's saying, we don't even have to think about this. And by the way, king, in the answer to your question about, you know, what God can deliver us out of your hand, well, by the way, that's our God. Our God can and is able to deliver us out of your hand. What confidence these three men had in the power of their God and in what, re- what relationship they had with God as they entrusted themselves to him. These three men were men of faith. They weren't just men of the law. They weren't just men trying to, to honor some code. These were some men who had faith in the God, in Jehovah, and the God of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. These were men of faith. But we don't have to think about this, they said, Even if God doesn't deliver us, we are not going to bow. We're not going to bow before your statue. We're not going to worship your gods. Their faith, their courage, their resolves is one of the things that makes this story so incredibly awesome. Their their unwillingness to bend, their unwillingness to capitulate to this tyrannical king. Verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. His facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers and their coats and their caps and their other clothes And they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because of the king's command was urgent, and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. I love the first part. Nebuchadnezzar is so angry, his face is contorted. You ever been serious seeing somebody so angry their face is just contorted with anger? Well, that's what Nebuchadnezzar's face was. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times its normal heat. You know, that's not literal. They didn't have thermostats. Seven is a number of perfection. He's basically saying, heat that furnace as hot as you can get it. And, uh, and he does, and they do. And obviously, they're going to cast these guys in from some height. There's, I don't know how, I've seen pictures, you know, people have drawn, drawn these, 
you know, ideas of what it might have been, but they, they were carried up and they were dropped into this place. The heat was so intense that Nebuchadnezzar killed some of the men that felt, you know, they were responsible for taking the men in. I guess they got so close that the heat burned them and killed them. And so the king lost some of his best soldiers, but they throw them in, all bound up, all their clothes on, throws them into the fire. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded and stood up in haste. And he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. And he said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking around in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around them and saw and regarded these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come on them. You know, what happened next is surely it, it must have brought many to faith that day. I don't see how it couldn't have. The furnace, however it was constructed, Nebuchadnezzar could see in it. The fire has obviously died down because he's going to approach the entrance to the, to the furnace. So it's obviously died down. But when it dies down, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't see three men walking in the midst of the flames. He sees four men. And their bonds are all loosed. And they're walking around. And evidently they're talking. And he said the fourth man was like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar refers to him as an angel. He, he orders the three men to come out. Many have speculated about who the fourth man was. Some have said he was the Lord Jesus, you know, before his incarnation as a human, taking on human form, you know, in the, in the fire with them. It very well could have been. It could have been another angel. But it was somebody sent from God. It was somebody sent from God, and, and whoever that person was, he protected those three men. Once they come out of the fire, it says that all of the officials gathered around them and they are inspecting them. I, I have this mental picture, see if you don't agree. So here's the three men standing there and here's all the officials all around them and they're, they're going around and they're tugging on their shirts and, you know, is your shirt still intact? And maybe they're going around going, I don't even smell smoke on these guys. Look, their hair is not even singed. And so they're being inspected by these people and, and there's not even the smell of fire on these men. Their clothes are not burned. Their hair is not singed. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. The king goes from rage to rave. He is praising them and he is praising their God. He says, there's no other God but your God who can do what your God does. He orders that no one ever speak against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, lest they forfeit their life and their possessions, their home. He recognizes the three men's faithfulness to God and being willing to lay down their lives for this God they serve and this God they love. 
He recognizes that no God can deliver anyone like their God delivered them. And in the end, he causes them to prosper all the more. Some people have wondered about Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you wonder about Nebuchadnezzar? If you were here last week, you remember at the end of chapter 2, he was astounded by what Daniel did, not only interpreting the dream, but telling him what the dream was and telling him what the dream meant. And he was astounded by that. And I told you, he's, at the end of every one of these stories, I think Nebuchadnezzar is inching closer to faith. And so you, you think at the end of, of story one, right, he, he would have been there, but he wasn't, obviously. And here at the end of, uh, end of story two, he's still not there. He's still not quite there. But, uh, but he is, I, I believe, inching closer to faith. And God, you say, how can he not, how can he not have faith in the God of Jehovah? I mean, the God of, of Israel. I, I don't know. I don't know. What a great story. What a great story. But this is a great story that's just filled with illustrative material. And what can we learn from it? And so I want to give you four things that I see in this story, four things that I believe are illustrated by the lives of these three men and what they chose to do that day, and, and four things that I think probably apply to all, to all of us or will apply to all of us at some point in our life, if not always in our lives. The first one is this. Sometimes we're going to have to stand when everyone else around us is bowing. Sometimes we're going we're gonna to have to stay standing when everyone else around us is caving in to something else that's not right, that's not good. You know, this past week we saw the Boy Scouts bow to the new reality of the sexual revolution and the gender dysphoria that's sweeping the land and changing our culture. Now, the Boy Scouts are not us. They're not, they shouldn't be equated with our Christian faith. They shouldn't be equated with the church. But they are illustrative of what's happening around us, where everyone is caving in and bowing in to something that, that God says is morally not right. Last week, the General Assembly of California voted 50 to 14 to criminalize, and I quote, a transaction intended to result to result or that results in the sale or lease of goods or services to any consumer that consists of advertising, offering to engage in, or exchanging in sexual orientation change efforts with an individual. The bill defines sexual orientation change efforts as any practice that seeks to change an individual's sexual orientation. This includes efforts to change behaviors or gender expressions or to eliminate or reduce sexual romantic attractions or feelings towards individuals of the same sex. Now, here's what that means. What that simply means is that it is illegal for you to try to help someone change if they have gender dysphoria, if they have same-sex attraction and they don't want to pursue that, it is illegal now for you to do anything where you're selling something or you're, you're a psychiatrist or a Christian counselor. And there's, if any money is exchanged, that becomes a criminal offense. And many people have said that because the Bible speaks of homosexuality as being immoral, that now the sale of the Bible is supposedly illegal in California. I'm not sure whether the governor has signed that yet or not. With the change happening all around us in our culture in which we live, embracing a different set of values in a different worldview than the one we share as followers of Jesus, if you follow Jesus, more and more you're going to have to stand alone. 
Now, I want, to, I want you to hear me here. I'm not talking about standing in arrogance. I'm not talking about standing in mean-spiritedness. I'm not talking about standing in some sort of moral superiority. I'm talking about just standing for truth more and more as our culture changes. You're going to have to stand alone. You might be the only person in your workplace who still believes that marriage should be between a man and a woman. You might be the only one in your workplace that believes that homosexuality is morally wrong as far as God is concerned. You might be the only person who believes abortion is wrong in your place of work. More and more, that's what's going to happen. You'll stand alone on your, ver on your views on abortion, gender, marriage. You'll stand alone on all kinds of other moral issues, financial issues, poverty issues. And you're going to stand alone while more and more people are bowing to the normalization of, of these things in our culture. Now listen, I, I know part of this is so hard because we've, we've, we've lived in a culture that's had a very Christian moral foundation, but that's all changing. It's hard to stand when everyone else is bowing, isn't it? The Japanese have a statement. Here's their statement. The nail that sticks up gets hammered down. One of the reasons why I think it's hard for us to stand is we don't want to stand out. We don't want to be different than, uh, than everyone else. I actually had found this video, but I forgot to put it in the slide, so I can't, so I can't show it to you. But I'm just going to tell you about it. ABC did this little thing. Maybe you saw it on Primetime or 2020, something like that, where they, they take these people in a room, and, and they've got one person who's in on it. And one person is going to choose something that's obviously wrong but they're going to be really adamant about it. And they're going to watch, or they, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. They got one person who is, who, who's not in on it. Everybody else is on it, right? And so it, maybe it's the length of a line, or it's something they're going to do in, in the office. And, and everybody's in on it except for one person. And it's just something really stupid and ridiculous. And as it goes along, the one person who's not in on it begins to do it because everybody else is doing it. Okay, for instance, so they, uh, they uh, I wish I had done this. I wish I was going to show it to you. But they, they have this little test, and there's, these, there's a slide up there with all these different lines of different lengths. And they have A, B, C, D, E, whatever. Which one of them is, this, which, which two are the same length? And they do it, first of all, privately, and just about everybody gets it right. But then they do it as a group. And then the first person says, well, it's A and C, but it's really not. It's A and D, right? As they go through the list, they get to the one person who's not in on it, but he goes along with everybody else. Even though when he does it on his own, or she does it on her own, they, they, they get it right. You follow me? Or they're in this office, and, and so this, this bell goes off, and every time the bell goes off, everybody in the office stands up, and then they sit back down. And before long, the one person who's not in on it, when the bell goes off and everybody stands up, He's standing up, too. He doesn't have any idea why. He's just standing up because everybody else... Here's my point. It's just really hard to be different from everyone else. It's really hard to stand out. But I want to tell you something. If you follow Jesus, you've got to get used to that. You've got to get used to... You're going to have to stand when everyone else is bowing. You're going to have to be different than everyone else. And, and again, I want to reiterate, I'm not talking about you being different in some sort of uh, you know, moral superiority or, or you're being different in somehow this, this arrogant, prideful way. I'm just simply saying you cannot go along with where everyone else is going. Number two, sometimes standing may really cost you. It's hard enough to stand out, just to stand out, right? I guarantee you for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when everyone else in the whole community is bowing before the gold statue, and here's these three men who were standing, that was hard. 
But I tell you what, there was a huge cost for them standing. And the huge cost was that the king had said, We're gonna, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. There was a huge cost. America has been, and I've said this a lot, and you need, to, you need to brace it, you need to understand it, America has been in a bubble of time. It's been a long time. It's probably been the length of, 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 our, of our union, right? That, that America has lived this bubble of Christian freedom and Christian prosperity and isolation from persecution. We as American Christians, or Christians who have any Americans, I mean, we have been immune from all of that stuff, but things are shifting. Things are shifting. And with that shift may come actually a cost for you at some point in the future. You need to realize that standing may actually cost you something. And not just the social isolation of being different from everybody else. I'm talking about costing. It may cost you your job. Your boss may not, may not want you. My, I, I, know, I know this family is trying to adopt. And they were willing to adopt a child with with disabilities, but when the potential mother who had a very disabled little girl found out that this couple was a Christian couple, they didn't want that couple to have the child. So I'm telling you, there, there may come a time in our culture, in our society, where the cost just isn't you being different. I mean, it's actually a cost. You might lose your job. You might, yeah, I'm not going to go much further than that. You might lose your job. How do we do that? How, how do we stand when there may be a cost for us to stand? How do we get to the place that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to? Well, here, here is my thought from the text. They had already determined, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already determined their, their greatest love, their highest allegiance, their ultimate fidelity, and it belonged to God. And so, you know, when, the, when it push came to shove, and so they've got this choice between bowing to a gold statue or standing in the furnace... They didn't even need to think about it because they'd already determined, we're going to love God. We're going to be faithful to God. We're going to be in allegiance to God. Even if that means dying for him, we'd already, they'd already settled the matter. And I don't mean to pretend that, that for most of us my age, and, and you know, I don't think it's ever going to come to that in our own country, at least not for a long time yet. But, but they had already settled the issue that no matter what it costs me, I'm going to love God and I'm going to follow God. And I'm telling you, what you and I have to answer is the question, is God our greatest allegiance? Is God our greatest love? Is he, is he the one who holds our greatest fidelity? We, we need to answer that question. We need to determine that. We talk about fire, and this morning we talk about the armor of God, and the armor of God was the belt, belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, breastplate of righteousness, feet of the gospel, the shield of faith, and the sword of the word of God. That was the armor of God. But, but all that really means is, am I going to love God so that when the, the, the enemy attacks my mind and my heart and he, and he brings to bear pressure on me, am I going to believe the truth that loving God and following God is more valuable than anything else? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had already determined that. You know I know? Because the first thing they said to the king was this, we don't even have to think about this. We don't have to give you an answer. We can tell you right now, you know, we're not going to bow to your statue because we've already determined who is our greatest love. Jesus told us the greatest commandment is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. In other words, love God with all your being. being willing, be willing to give up your, your life, your nefesh for him. 
Be willing to give it up for him because you love him more than anything else. These men did that. And if you're going to stand and not bow, it'll be because you've dealt with this question. So I just ask you this morning, who do you love most? Who do you love most? What do you treasure most? Are you willing to lay down your life for him? But here's another question. Are you willing to lay down your happiness for him? Are you willing to lay down your ease of life for him? Go to prison for him? Or would you be willing to do that? You see, that, that's the question they answered. And they said, yep, we don't care what it is. We're going to love God most. So this story illustrates at least these two things. Number one, sometimes you're going to have to stand when everybody else is bowing. And sometimes when you stand, there's going to be a great cost attached to it. Here's the third thing. God is always able to rescue you when you stand. God is always, there's never going to be a time that you might choose to stand that God cannot rescue you. And that is one of the reasons why the story is so good and why we love it so much, because God steps in and he rescues them. In every story in the New Testament where God steps in and rescues, we love it. And so he raises Jairus' daughter and tells the wailing people she's alive and they laugh. You know, we don't love that story. Or he steps in and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Or he steps in and he opens the prison doors for Peter. So when Peter shows up at the prayer meeting, they don't even believe it's him because they don't really believe that God's going to step in. But God stepped in and let Peter out. And then he, and he steps in and he opens prison doors for Paul. And he steps in and when they stone Paul and leave him as dead, he's really not dead and God heals him. And, and, and he steps in for Paul when he's shipwrecked and he saves everybody on the ship so nobody dies. We love it when God steps in. And this story right here confirms that there's never a time that God can't step in and rescue us. Never! Never! Okay? And that's why, it's, that's why we can always be filled with hope because God can always step in at the very last minute, and he can, he can rescue us. That's what these three men knew. They knew that. They knew that, that God was able to rescue them. I love their answer to Nebuchadnezzar. And what God is there that can save you out of my hand? Oh, by the way, our God can. Our, can, our God can. And by the way, our God will. I mean, I just love their confidence, their confidence in the fact that, that not only can their God do it, but they're confident their God will rescue them in this case. The Bible says that we must have faith. We must have faith. And I want to tell you, I really believe this is what we ought to put our faith in, that God can rescue us, that God can rescue us. There's never, you're never, you're never going to take a stand for God when everyone else is bowing and there's repercussions that come with it that God can't rescue you out of that. Never. So you can be filled with hope. You can, you can trust him. You can be confident in him. But I got to hurry on to my fourth point, not because of time, but because I, I can't let that point sit, sit without tying it to this one. Here's my final point. But when you stand, know this, God may not rescue you and it will cost you. Their answer to Nebuchadnezzar was, God will rescue us. But if God doesn't rescue us, then let it be known to you, we're not going to bow to your golden statue. You know, the Bible is full of stories where God rescues people, and it's so cool, isn't it? But then there's full of stories where God doesn't rescue them. So Stephen stands up in front of the crowd and starts to preach, and he gets a little, he gets a little out of hand and starts calling them names, and they get so filled with rage, they take him out and they kill him. And God doesn't step in. God doesn't rescue Stephen from death. 
And then there's the Apostle Paul, and God rescues him and rescues him and rescues him until he doesn't rescue him, and then his head gets cut off by a Roman soldier. And then there's Peter, who gets set free from prison, and he gets rescued, and he gets rescued until he doesn't get rescued, and then he gets crucified upside down on a cross because he says, I'm not worthy to die like the Lord Jesus. The ge- generation after generation, the ground has absorbed the blood of brothers and sisters who stood when everyone else was bowing and God didn't rescue them. And the blood of our earth just absorbed, excuse me, the ground of our earth just absorbed their blood as they died. Our 15 Egyptian brothers, I think it's been two years ago, maybe it's four times fastest, passes so quickly, but there they, there they knelt on the beach there in the shallow waves of the Egyptian shore, and there their throats were cut, and God did not step in and rescue any of them. There's a bunch of preachers out there that'll tell you something like this. If you just believe hard enough, they'll never say it like this, but this is what they're saying. If you just believe hard enough, God becomes your puppet on a string, and he'll do anything you want him to do. And if, by the way, this puppet God on a string doesn't set you free, doesn't deliver you, then it's your fault. You just didn't obligate him enough with your faith. I say to that, hooey, 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 hooey. God is no one's puppet on a string, and you do not obligate God with your faith. Is faith uh, important? Absolutely. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you cannot please the Lord without faith. But I'm telling you, our faith doesn't obligate God in any way. I mean, God is not obligated by anything. God says he'll do certain things for our faith in response to our faith. He'll save us in response to our faith. But I tell you, he'll, he'll save our lives, but he'll never, he won't necessarily deliver us. He won't necessarily deliver us from what might be the ramifications of standing when everyone else is bowing. You may stand... And it may be the last time you stand on this planet. I love these men and their faith, don't you? Know this, King. If God doesn't rescue us, it doesn't matter. We will not bow. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were scared when they were climbing the stairs to the furnace? I think they were. I don't know. I think it's just, I think it's just human nature to be scared as they're feeling the heat. Can I ask you, if you are standing when everyone else is bowing and you see that you see the furnace coming, you know, might you be scared? I know, I'll be petrified. But here's a promise I want to make you that I believe God has made to us. He says his grace is sufficient for us in all of our needs. So I want to tell you, if you stand when everyone else is bowing and the cost is actually required of you, then God's grace is going to be sufficient for you. I've told this story before, but I just have to tell it again because it's so wonderful. It's the story of Thomas Hawkes, and he was an English reformer, and he was in prison because of his, his, his faith in the Lord Jesus. And um, while he's waiting to be burned at the stake, uh, he's allowed, his friends are allowed to see him. And so some come to him, and, and they're talking, and they say, Thomas, when you're dying, can you give us some sign that, you know, that the flames are going to be, that we can actually endure that? And Hawks promised, and I quote, by the help of God to show them that the most terrible torments could be endured in the glorious cause of Christ and his gospel, the comforts of which were able to lift the believing soul above all the injuries men could inflict. That was what he promised. And it was agreed on that if the pain of burning was bearable, the martyr would lift his hands towards heaven before he died as a signal to his friends. 
On April 10th, 1555, Thomas was led to a place of execution where he mildly and patiently prepared himself for the fire, being fastened to the stake with a strong chain about his middle. He addressed the, the onlookers, including his accusers, pointing out the sin and dreadful consequences of shedding innocent blood. And after Hawks had been ma made his prayer, poured out his soul to God, the flames were kindled around him and soon blazed with such fierceness that his speech could not be heard by the fire's intensity. As the fire burned a long time, his skin was drawn together, his fingers were consumed, and having not moved, the people thought him dead. Suddenly, and contrary to all expectation, Thomas, mindful of the promise he had made to his friends, raised his hands, still burning with fire, and above his head he clapped them in ecstasy, as if in ecstasy three times. And a great shout followed this wonderful circumstance, and then this blessed martyr of Christ, sinking down into the fire, gave up his spirit. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.